powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hi, everybody. Wow. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Wow. Thank you. Please, please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the 100th episode of The Derek Duvall Show. That's right. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. And what a milestone episode this is. Okay, before we get into the episode, I want to say a huge shout out to my last guest, Rachel Pizzolatto. I knew it was going to be a big hit based on her social media presence, but I never figured it would be the second highest downloaded episode in the history of this show. Rachel is a lovely girl, and I am so pleased the episode turned out so great and how well it was received. If you haven't had a chance to hear it, I strongly encourage you to give it a go after the conclusion of this special episode. Okay, I am still in complete shock that I'm about to say this, but welcome to episode 100. And man, oh man, have I got an incredible episode ready for you today. In one of the greatest moments of the Derek Duvall show, we have on this episode, ABC's chief meteorologist, Ginger Z. This is an incredibly in-depth episode where we discuss how Ginger got excited about weather, how she rose to the ranks to her current position on ABC, Good Morning America, her very public battle with mental health and how she inspires others who are struggling, her time on Dancing with the Stars, her crusade to battle the ever-growing danger of climate change, and so much more. I cannot wait for everyone to hear this episode, so let's just get Ginger out here. Duval Nation, please rise to your feet and welcome all the way from New York City, ABC's chief meteorologist, Ginger Z. Ginger, hello. Welcome to the 100th episode of the Derek Duval Show. Now, this is funny asking a meteorologist this, but how has the weather been with you today? Today is a gorgeous day. We are entering our second official heat wave of the season. We've been a little delayed on that, so we've been protected. Uh, nothing like what's been happening for the last three months in Texas. I start my interviews off with the same question. Now, is how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic? Oh, it's been an odd little ride, I'd say, for everybody. I mean, we've all been in this, getting used to what it is. I think we're all at the point of can't believe it's still here, but it's still part of our world and we'll do what we can to protect people. Uh, but at the beginning, you know, we were we were kind of patient zeros. We had it before anybody even had a name for it mm-hmm. that week before the world shut down that weekend. So maybe 10 days before the world shut down, uh, my son started getting sick, but he had kind of like vomit and diarrhea. We didn't know that that was how kids would have presented. And so we took him to doctors and we didn't know what was going on. And then mid, and nobody has masks yet at that point. Nobody even mentions that it could be that coronavirus thing. And then by the five days later, my other son says, my forehead hurts. I mean, these are, they're so little, they were four and two. And then I said, well, let me stay home. And that Friday before the world shut down, we got a call from the school. Two of their ho- two of their teachers were hospitalized with that thing called the coronavirus. So it was a it was a scary kickoff of really wild three weeks of not knowing what was next and how we would react. And nobody could get a test if you remember those lines and all that. Mm-hmm. And then it was kind of odd because we knew we had some sort of protection, didn't know what. But I'd say before most of the world went back to traveling and back to things, I went and I covered a wildfire almost immediately. Then we had the whole 2020 hurricane season, which was epic, amazing, you know, the most number of storms we'd ever had. And so I was incredibly busy and thrown back into what was a bit more normal. Uh, When I was home, I was in my basement doing the weather from a studio here. But in general, I think I had a modified COVID-19 pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was watching last week tonight with John Oliver, and I know they did a montage of all the news reporters who were having to do reports 
from their homes and their young children would walk in or the dogs would start barking. Yeah, I got a real chuckle out of that. We had my son would regularly walk in and then he would be like, can I have a bagel? So he would just had no idea what was going on and didn't care. (laughs) So every journey has a beginning. Yours kind of starts with being born in California, but moved to Michigan. Yes, West Michigan. So what was that like growing up there? So West Michigan is, I think, one of the more beautiful places in the United States or the world. Um, Lake Michigan is just such a jewel. And that is part of why I am who I am. I grew up not on the lake, but when my parents divorced, my mom started dating our dentist, which only matters because he had this really great home on Lake Michigan, which was never something that we would have had access to before. But I spent an entire summer um, at that cottage watching storms come across Lake Michigan. And that is where I first fell in love with the idea that there was a puzzle out there that was the atmosphere and that I could try to put it together because sometimes the storms would come toward us. Sometimes they would rain. Sometimes it would be windy. Sometimes it would look like they were doing the same thing that they did four days before, but then they'd go to the north or, you know, I would be watching and realizing that puzzle. And so I, that was, I was eight. I was so young and I really knew that I loved weather, but I never thought that I wanted or could do it as a job. I I knew people did it on television at that time and that had zero interest to me. I was very shy. And then I saw the movie Twister and I went and saw Helen Hunt's character and thought, that's it. That's who I wanna be. I wanna be this badass lady on top of a storm chasing vehicle. And then I looked for colleges and sure enough, there are colleges that let you chase tornadoes. And so that's, was what I wanted to do. Now, within the year, we had a derecho or within that year and a half, I think, um, in West Michigan with 130 mile per hour winds. And that theater where I saw Twister was wrecked. And that confirmed even more. And in that one, I started watching the local news coverage because it was interesting to me that now this weather that I loved so much and I wanted to study and be Helen Hunt had done something very bad and it had killed people and it had injured people and it had wrecked my my movie theater. So I saw more news coverage and the and the the beauty of telling stories a bit was kind of at least planted. I still didn't want to do it, but it was there. And then when I went to college to chase tornadoes and I I joined the storm chasing fraternity and I was uh I did the the summer storm chases, day chases to Iowa. It was everything I wanted. And then one of my professors said, you know, when you do the weather briefing, when we we would go to forecast before we would chase, he's like, you really communicate well. I think you should check out broadcasting. And I was like, oh, no, no, thank you, sir. <laughs> it's not for me. And he really encouraged me over the year to at least try an internship. And then fortuitously, I did get one. And that internship turned out to be with just a king in the weather industry. His name is James Spann. And had I not had that experience, I don't think I would have done what I'm doing right now. But after that internship with this, he's just such a, just a fantastic scientist, but an even better human father, community member, like all the good stuff all in one. And then he communicates science better than anybody I know. So after I did that internship, I came away from it thinking, wait a minute, I could kind of be like if James Spann and Helen Hunt had a baby. And that is what I became. (laughs) You say you've been in Oklahoma before and you mentioned you were a fan. Have you ever made it to Waukita to check out the Twister Museum they have there? You know, I haven't been to the Twister Museum because every time I'm in Oklahoma, I'm chasing. So I don't have time to like hang out. Um, I've been through and in Oklahoma every year of my life since I was 19, I feel like. I'm, you know, I'm almost never not there, but I'm always on the move. And so I've, I've, you know, fortunately or unfortunately been there for some busts, but a lot of, unfortunately, the more uh, El Reno, some of the big, yeah. big ones, too. Oh, yeah. We definitely remember more in El Reno here. All right. So you are a graduate of Valpo. Do you have any favorite memories from your time there? Oh, my gosh. So I was in uh, the college radio station, WVUR, and I had a one of my, I was an RA, and one of the other RAs and I started a radio show. And I had so much fun with those guys, like the way that we just created really ridiculous content on the radio. (laughs) I don't know who was listening, but it was a really great way to learn what production is, what producer even means, what that, you know, how to entertain and inform, um, but also like 
we threw a jello wrestling competition, you know, college <laughs> stuff. So I'd say that that's probably one of my favorite memories that don't that doesn't have to do with storm chasing. Do you remember your very first television weather report? Yes. So I was because uh, <laughs> I, I had done in that internship in Birmingham, I had done a tape. I'd made a tape, but that was not on television. That was just for myself to kind of have as a, as a memento. I still wasn't 100 percent sure that I was going to do this for a living. And I came back to my next meteorology course in my sophomore year. And there was a sign on the wall in the meteorology department and it said, meteorologist audition at PBS in Maryville, Indiana. So I went, I auditioned and I got it. And so I got to have my first, now it was taped to then go on television, but they only let me do it once. Um, so I definitely remember the nerves. I remember what I wore. It was the first thing I'd ever really bought myself. And I had gone to JCPenney and got this two piece, really, really cheap suit. Um, I think it was probably $30 and it had a replaceable collar to, you could make it into three outfits. It was very efficient and sustainable because it was three in one. <laughs> and so I wore that. I was horribly nervous. I had not changed my last name yet. So the poor guy introducing me really tripped over meteorologist Ginger Zeitgeist. And then, <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, you know, we went on our way and I, I made all, you know, made my graphics and PBS, this is, this is, I cannot believe this was legal, but they would just let us steal things from places in Photoshop up. Photoshop. <laughs> That's how we put up like US maps or, or we didn't have a graphic system. So um, not fair use, but whatever. We did it. <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. All right. So since you were talking about getting established, how hard is it to get established in a male dominated industry? It's hard. And, and it's funny because I'll still have people say to me, oh, you only got this because you're a woman because they had to put women in. And I'm like, oh, boy. OK. Uh, I don't think that that's true. I actually think that it probably has stopped me more than it's helped me, especially early in my career. I think we've come quite a way societally since then. The term weather girl is the term that has just been a part of the you know vocabulary of America since broadcasting began, because that was true. There were people on television, both men and women, not girls or boys, but men and women who did not have a degree in meteorology and were just ripping and reading from, you know, a bulletin from the National Weather Service. And we're talking right. early days of television. Now, pretty quickly in local markets, that changed. And most local stations, you are going to find someone who has some degree, if not a lot of degrees in meteorology. So at a local level, I think that it changed earlier and there are a lot of unbelievable women who have come before me in those places who have fought those battles even more than I ever did. So I wouldn't say it was such resistance that you know I couldn't navigate, but the entire time I've been in my career, I have felt this mostly from the audience, not as much I would say from you know my fellow meteorologists or anything, but from an audience or from even sometimes a news director, a lack of tr belief in me or um, worried that the audience doesn't find a woman credible as a scientist. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is coming to the network, I think I know that my storm chasing and my unique position in how I had grown and, and who I am really, because I am that kind of baby of James Spann and, and uh, Helen Hunt, that helped me to get here. But I will say, I'm the first woman chief meteorologist at any network. I'm the first time, uh, most networks have not had an actual scientist. And so it's been a real, like, I feel like I'm bludgeoning people half the time with the information that, no, 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 I, I, I really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know? And and you, sh I don't want to bludgeon people with it. I want them to just learn it. But there are right. times where you kind of have to, and you have to say, no, you got you to gotta hear this. And it just takes too much time to explain again. Um, so when people say, oh, you know, you're the weather girl, it's taken a long time for me to find grace. And when they say it, now I can be gracious and say, I appreciate that you think I'm young enough to be called a girl, uh, but I actually am a meteorologist and I'm happy that means. Now, I see you occasionally on social media where someone will call you a weather girl and you are quick to correct like, no, no, meteorologist. One of my favorite tweets was, you're the ugliest weather girl I've ever seen. And I said, oh, wow. no, I'm the ugliest meteorologist. Because <laughs> wow. you can wow. have an opinion about my beauty. You are mm -hmm. not allowed to have an opinion about the fact 
of my scientific education. So thank you. <laughs> wow. I want to move into the science behind what you do. But before that, there is a question I want to ask, and that's taking ABC and all the other networks out of the equation. What do you think of meteorologists around the country becoming local celebrities in their respective markets? Do you buy into that? Because I know our local weathermen here in Tulsa, they're revered. Yeah, I here's what I think. Local stations are so endearing in that way because people really watch and they should, you know, like local news yeah. has a purpose always because there will always be the need to share information about the place that you live in. The connection that people then develop with these folks, especially if they're there for decades, is deep. <laughs> they yeah. watch, they are in their living room as much as their significant other. So of course you're going to create this connection. When I was in Chicago and still to this day, because I was in Chicago for five years, people think they're like, are you coming home? Are you coming back? I'm like, I'm not, that's not home, but sure. Yeah, like, no, I love Chicago. Um, they don't want to let, and I liked that a lot. I like, and I also build this trust and responsibility that at a local market they have, that their expertise of that place, James Spann, for example, knows every nook and cranny of every back lot of big lots. He can tell you when a tornado is going through, it is in the big lots parking lot. And it's moving over to where Chick-fil-A is and it's crossing over this. That gives me a little bit of, of uh, mm -hmm. goosebumps because I think about how much that has meant for places like Oklahoma or Alabama, where these tornadoes regularly kill and regularly torture people and land and these things. So you need that connection. You need that trust. So in that way, I think that, but, but of course it can be overblown and, and you better follow through with fantastic stuff like James does. <laughs> How far do you think female representation in STEM has come over the last few years? It has a name, which is pretty cool. You know, like when I was growing up, there was nothing called STEM. There was nothing called STEM until I don't know how long it's been around, 15 years, 10, 15 years. So to have an acronym alone is great. And then to indicate that women should be involved and lifted up within it is even better. I was really privileged to have a mother who's a nurse practitioner in the neonatal. And so science was encouraged and it was modeled for me. Not everybody has that. And I think that STEM programs can be that just like Girl Scouts create community, just like any community of anything gives you something to learn and a new network within your little world, you know, children's worlds are so small and then right. it helps them to build this um, out and out and out. So I, I think STEM has come a very long way, but there's so much more to go because I know all of, I've seen all the statistics of how few girls are still getting involved in engineering and math. And, and, and then, you know, I wrote about this in my books because I think part of it is the label we give ourselves. And I guess I was just lucky to label myself that I was, that I enjoyed math and science and that that was something that was encouraged by my family. December 2nd of 2013, you are announced as the incoming chief meteorologist for ABC News. What was the process for achieving that? And do you remember the moment you found out you got the position? So to come even to ABC, I, I had worked at NBC affiliates. After that PBS station, everything I did was NBC. So I was really at the other guy and I was filling in on MSNBC and early today. And when I was working in Chicago, I would come to New York quite often and fill in for Bill Karens and do Morning Joe. And it really felt like that was going to be my next fit. And I remember talking to their talent folks and saying, come on, just you should have one person on the weekend and it should be me. You know, it just makes <laughs> sense. And they just weren't ready to do that yet. And then I had a great meeting with ABC and I met with Ben Sherwood, who was the president at the time. And I think he, well, I know he was just my huge champion. And I didn't know that before seeing him. And it was a long interview day, met a lot of people. And then he wasn't even supposed to meet with me, but he saw me in the hall several times going to other people's offices. And he brought me over to his office. And we talked for about 20, 25 minutes. And I think the key, the one turning moment when I really went from, oh, it's someone that we're interested in the future to we, we're going to hire her, is he said, what do you want to do here if you were to be? an ABC employee. And I said, I want to get a tornado on world news, but I want to be there beforehand because I really feel like at the network level, everything I've ever seen is a day or two late. And science is so much farther than that. I want to celebrate what we know about science and be there for it and then show people 
uh, the power that it has. And I have those skills and I can bring that there. And all the while, I want to make great TV. Like, I just want to make television that connects to people. And that's what he needed to hear. And within the next couple of minutes, the other woman who was running um, the talent program finally got in and she and he, he said, hire Ginger. <laughs> so it was pretty quick. It was pretty astounding, but it felt right. And it still has always felt right. And this is a place and not, not, nothing to bash the other places I'd ever been that I really have felt like he believed in me. And then they, as a you know, community of ABC believe, and it's a place where you really can expand and right. take, and, and that's what I've been able to do in growing the climate unit and something that I was fighting for four years because it just was kind of felt like, and now I think everybody sees how incredibly useful and necessary it is. And it just feels like this was all, you know, you climb and you climb. Once I got into news, okay, network's it, network's it. This is just the top, just the plateau. There's a whole nother mountain to climb that I'm still going over to. Your book and memoir, Natural Disaster, I Cover Them, I Am One, was released to almost universal praise. Looking back at it now, how therapeutic was it for you to write and release it? I didn't intend to write it, and it was the most necessary thing for my own healing and then I think for everything in my life. So I had gone, you know, my, my mental health journey has been long um, and it was not picture perfect. I didn't get the help I needed when I needed it most until I finally got this job in that Ben Sherwood interview. After that interview and after I got the hire, it was about five months before I started. And so it was a really, you know, those kind of like senioritis. And I was in um, a really horribly abusive relationship and I had never attended to my mental health. And so <laughs> right before I started at ABC, partly because I was afraid of him, partly because I was afraid of myself and what I would do to myself. And mostly because I saw some light at the end of the tunnel and that light being working with Diane Sawyer working with Robin Roberts, working with Dan Harris, having these people who I had aspired to and worked so hard to get to, and then I was going to wreck it all, you know? And so I thought, well, this is the time where I go get help. And from that moment to when I wrote my book, I did a ton of work. I, w I, I was hospitalized, then I did really intensive therapy outpatient, and I finally got to the place where I was healing. And then I think the book was just the next level of healing that I didn't realize I needed. Uh, the transparency with all. It was the first breakdown of me saying, I am so imperfect. And I guess I don't care that you know it. Powerful. In your time covering weather and in your judgment, what was the hardest weather-related news story you've ever had to cover? Oh, which one? <laughs> <laughs> um, I still feel like Katrina stands out. It, 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 probably because it was my first, but also because it was Katrina. There will be, and I hope never, a response as horrific is that. And I think that it adds to why I feel the way I do and why it feels, it felt so desperate. And it felt like we weren't in America, to be honest, you know, like it really felt like we were somewhere where <clears throat> this was an island that nobody had gotten to yet to help all these poor people who had just lost all their neighbors. And it was, it was the first big storm I covered and I saw bodies for the first time. And I saw, you know, being there in that desperate moment after I had not done that since then, I've done it dozens of times. And I, I don't think that I've gotten cold or hardened to it, but I expect it now. Now I know what to do. I know how, you know, I know how to allow myself to feel and be a part of that, but also how best to tell, I think, their story. And my why has changed so much since then. I, I went down to Gulfport because that's where I covered it, really worried or not worried, but oddly fascinated by how does a storm surge of 22 feet look? What does it look like? You know, like, how do I even conceive of that? Because that we didn't chase hurricanes in college. I did a lot of tornadoes, but I had not done tropical weather to that degree. And within 30 seconds of being there and seeing once the damage was done and the people started emerging from their places, I realized this is not about the storm surge line. It is about people. And that's when everything really changed. And that storm is so epic. Um, as far as meteorologically going, though, I think Hurricane Michael you know, as a cat five in the Florida panhandle, that one sticks out. Um, we were in the eye wall there for about 45 minutes and we were safe, but we were watching people's homes twist off their foundation, roll down the street and break apart. And I would covered enough storms by then, because this is 2018, that I had done so many stories where I talked to people who had lost family members 
when their home twisted off the foundation and rolled down the street. And all of those memories of those stories I'd told and of the graphics that I'd made, the 3D graphics that I had based their stories on were happening right in front of me. And that was, I don't, I don't think fear is, it, it, I wasn't fearful. I was fearful that I was watching people die. It was more like that verification of heat, like in the UK. It's like, we can forecast something. We knew this was going to be incredible, but to see it happen, a whole different thing because you're living it. Okay, Duval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here. But we'll be right back with the conclusion of this amazing interview with ABC's chief meteorologist, Ginger Z. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and just do a really nice big stretch. Give a couple friends of the show your attention and we will be right back. Hey, do you have a podcast or maybe you're just thinking about starting a podcast? Well, I am Chris from Podtastic Audio, and here I show you tips and tricks on how to make your audio sound the best it possibly can with the gear you already have. With two years of experience on the Chris and Christine show creating the finest audio I possibly can make, I will show you the tips and tricks I have used on that show to make the audio sound fantastic. So if you have any podcast-related questions to your audio, you always can email me at podtasticaudio at gmail.com like this guy here did. His name is Joe. Joe writes in from the cast. Hey Chris, when we all sit down together to record our episode, our audio is too low and it has a lot of echo in the recording. How do we make our show sound better? Well, Joe, is the microphone you're using rhyme with the name Betty? And is that microphone in the same room with you? I'd start with that stuff first. And for more podtastic audio information, you can go to anchor.fm slash podtastic audio and you keep on making your amazing podcast. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts. Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Hi, it's Michelle Fabre, and you can hear my new single, Last Chance for Love, on Spotify, Apple Music, and all other streaming platforms. Last chance for love, last chance for love, can we make it? Just tell me so. Hello, this is Erica, host and guide of the YouTube vlog Mon Jardin au Coin. I invite you to join me as we explore the many joys of gardening, such as sowing seeds, raising plants, and the reward of harvesting. If gardening is something you're interested in, or you just want to follow my adventures and receive tips to help any novice break into starting their own garden, you can find Mon Jardin au Coin on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. I look forward to having you hang out with me in my little garden on the corner. Hello everyone, this is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, a veteran's journey from homeless to hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold.
Welcome back to our magnificent 100th episode of The Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with ABC's chief meteorologist, Ginger Z. In your years in this business, I know you've shaken a lot of hands and met a lot of people. What would you say was the best piece of advice anyone has ever given you? I think George Stephanopoulos and I don't talk often enough. You know, we, we talk on the show, we talk here and there like niceties, but when I really need some big advice, I go to George and Robin because they've done this a long time and both of them always serve great advice. And his sticks out for this one reason that I, I just was in a tizzy about, oh, they're doing this and it's, it's, they're, they're coming for me and I'm going to lose my job and I'm going to do this. And he told me pretty early on, you know, he feels like that about every six months. <laughs> and he, he said, that's, you know, that that's something you're going to have to get through and realize that's you. Uh, and then, you know, he encouraged me because I have a specialty. It's different than his specialty, but we have specialties and we have things that we are expert in and we are the experts in those. And he said, stay in your lane, do the absolute best you can in that lane. If it doesn't work after that, that's life. Right. But like all that periphery stuff, because everything I was talking about was, oh, they're not including me in this. And I'm not doing this. And they didn't choose me for this. When they don't choose you for a hurricane, you've got a problem. Right. But like stay in that lane and, and keep your head down and work hard. And, and not that I didn't know that, but it's very easy to let your ego be reaching for every last thing. And um, that was that was great to keep me in line. <laughs> you just mentioned George Stephanopoulos. Now, you are indeed blessed to be working with some of the best people in the news business with Good Morning America. What is it like to wake up, go to work and know you are working shoulder to shoulder with some of the absolute best in the business. Yeah, it doesn't escape me that often because I see it's like watching a masterclass every single morning. Um, Robin, for example, when I see her, her strength of everything is paying attention. Very few people pay attention in life. She pays attention to everything. She watches, she listens, and she remembers. And then she makes people feel special. And so she can, you know, and she just incorporates that in the show. A lot of people get stuck in the box and they think that this is all it has to be. She always thinks outside of it. She always thinks about and sees other things and then brings it in. So I watch that in her. I watch in so many of my colleagues that have covered wars and done things that I can't even imagine. You know, whether nature is so forgiving and we can forgive it so easily because it is what it is. And I feel like because I've studied it, I have such a great handle. I have a great respect for it, but I, I think it's kind of, um, there's, there's a control I feel in a way versus covering stories like Uvalde. My colleagues that do things like that, where you, you, you can't forecast it. You can't have any idea. I really admire their ability to be able to do those stories because that's a nightmare to me. I wouldn't, I, I would not be able to do it. I don't have interest in doing it. It's very different for me to go to someone's home and say, so why didn't you leave? Get a real answer from that and then talk about their loved ones being killed by a storm. You know, that has more sense to me. And so I feel like I'm always watching the best in the business right around <laughs> me and uh, in admiration, but also kind of like, I'm not envious. <laughs> Y'all keep doing that. <laughs> it's very interesting that you say that as a year or two ago now, I had a World War II veteran who was a survivor of USS Indianapolis, which was the biggest maritime disaster in U.S. Navy history. Now, the ship was sunk, and the majority of the crew spent the next few days waiting for rescue and fending off the sun and drowning and being eaten alive by sharks. You have to phrase your questions in a way where you want to get the facts, but you also don't want to be sensationalist or upset the guests you are speaking with. Yes, it's got to be really hard. Whereas with weather, it is just fact. Like the temperature hit 40C, the temperature hit 40C. Yes, you can emphasize it differently. It's the first time in recorded history, but it just doesn't have the human or subjectivity mm -hmm. at all. It's math. <laughs> in your opinion, of course, what's been the largest obstacle you've ever had to overcome? Myself. Mm. No question. It's me every single time. And I, I remind myself of that whenever anything seems that way because I tend to take it on as if everything's my fault or I, I turn it. And that's a very selfish thing to do. So I've become very self-aware in that way and tried to, you know, I still stay up with therapy. Therapy to me is more important than going to the gym. It's, it's the most important thing I do all week. 
even if I feel like, what do I, nothing's really wrong. You don't have to have something wrong to be able to talk through things. And I think that is one of those stereotypes that I've had to even keep reminding myself every time is there's a lot of growth to be had in mental health is and should be number one. And we should maintain that and not just say, well, I got a lot better. Feel whole my, oh yeah. It's like going to the gym and getting in good shape and then stopping. That's not how it works. So I think that I have been the biggest, but I've also you know, I'm still incredibly proud of what I've been able to build and the, the weather team that I have been able to grow at ABC of now, I think it's six meteorologists that we, you know, when I came, there was one behind the scenes. And now we have, I have a team of this and I've also grown the climate unit. I'm the managing editor. It's really phenomenal to see. And that, that kind of, I don't do an affirmation book yet. I'm not there, but if I think, sit back and think about it, I really do like to sit in that gratitude of seeing what I've been able to build once in a while and then saying, and now what? Man, that's really cool, Ginger. Okay, so I told some people close to me that you were coming on the show, and in between the excitement, a lot of my female friends wanted me to ask you this next question, and the question is this. In your opinion, how far has the Me Too movement come in the news industry? I think it's come really far. I mean, so I, I should say on a personal side, I have not had the experience and but i have known people who have had the experience and i have definitely watched the fallout you know uh, from different places in different times and i think so i can but only tangentially can i say what i think has happened what's interesting and i don't know where this goes next is when there is a claim you know if it's not legal uh, meaning if the police have not been involved i think in the workplace it's still really difficult for a he said she said and so I don't think we're to the point where it's like gone. It's great that people feel confident saying what happened. But now, and I know that there are cases where it, it went too far and somebody was reprimanded that shouldn't have been. And I think that there, of course, there's both sides. But maybe if this, we settle back to where we are, I, I imagine that many of the cases are not being heard still. Or, mm -hmm. or the, the, you know, what happens to the person is not being followed through with and, and they're still working and they're still working sometimes in the same vicinity as the person. Um, so I don't know how you fix that though, because you know, we have to innocent until proven. Okay. Fair enough. The next hot button question. And I know I feel strongly about this is this very simple question. How far and how dangerous has the climate emergency become? It's, I mean, the, the, the thing is, is people always say, be careful with the doom and gloom. People don't want to hear that. It's bad. <laughs> it's definitely, what's bad about it is the delay and the denial that got us this far. You know, the fact that we have known about the way that greenhouse gas emissions have been warming our planet, scientifically confident in this since the 1970s, yet it's really just the last five years where people are paying attention and setting net zero, um, you know, yeah. goals. So I think in that way, that's alarming to me. That sucks. I'm, I wish we could have really gotten on board with science a whole lot earlier. When what's interesting about the pandemic is watching medicine go through what meteorology and climatology have gone through for the past 50 years. It was like a full dismantling of medicine of people's trust in medicine and they're picking a part of it as if none of it was true i think if you ask someone five years ago if their doctor says something they listen right i'd say in yeah. general there wasn't too much of that but the pandemic like broke it in half and threw the two parts across the room and then it's very hard to get that back together climate science has been doing that since the 70s so i think we saw that happen really early i'll use the bottle bill as an example so when you know, we started using more plastics in beverages before water bottles were prolific and all these things. There was, and everybody that's, you know, older than 40 or around 40 probably remembers the commercial from the 1980s where there's a Native American rolling down in a kayak or canoe and the litter starts filling the frame and a single tear close up falls down this Native American's face. Well, we grow up with the feeling of, oh my gosh, we are polluting the earth. And that was the intent of the ad. 
now that I've studied this for so long, knowing where that ad came from, it was paid for by the beverage industry. And it was paid for because of the bottle bill being uh, presented. And as we know, only I think it's 11 states passed the bottle bill. So I grew up in a state where for every bottle, it was 10 cents in a refund. Nobody ever let that bottle go. Every aluminum can and every plastic bottle went back to the grocery store. As a kid, we got all of our gas money from that. We did it. It, just, it makes a circular economy as, and, and it makes recycling have value for both sides, but it does put onus on the beverage industry. So they did not like that. It's been proven. This is not like I'm like breaking news or something, but I go back to this because we knew what would work. They knew the bottle bill would work, but it costs money for the people who were going to make money. And so I think that a lot of times something like policy, like in that case, what a difference that could have made in the future of plastic pollution, not just here in the United States, because we're not the only ones that pollute, but we do. We plastic pollute number one in the world, by the way, because we have more than everybody else. And so I just wish that things like that wouldn't have become so convoluted. It's really quite easy. We can still have the convenience of grabbing a bottle of something at a place that is not our home and not having to carry the thing everywhere. Cause I know that's so hard for people and you know, but like it's gone so far, it's so out of control and we'll never get a bottle bill in any of those States. I don't think that's happening. So what do we do now? How do we fix this now? And I think it's that reversal of like, Oh, that's so frustrating that, that 50 years ago it was, it was separated like that and we could have done it right. So I hope that whatever we make choices going forward, you know, we can do better. Very well said. All right, moving on now, I would like to talk to you about your second book, A Little Closer to Home, How I Found Calm After the Storm. Very, very good. Very well received. I was watching an interview you did when you were doing the talk show circuit promoting the book. And one thing that you said has struck a chord in my brain and you called yourself an executive people pleaser. And I felt like I sort of identified with that. So would you please, for my listeners and myself, could you go into a little more detail about that, please? Yes. I was born a people pleaser. I know that now because my son came out the same way. I wanted to blame a lot more on my parents of making me a people pleaser, but I think they only amplified it. So I think I was born it, and then it got worse because of my environment and because mm -hmm. of the things that happened in my life. And so as I grew, uh, pleasing people was kept me away from confrontation, which has always been very difficult for me. And it just kept things easy and tame and not explosive and not emotionally flooding. And all of the words that I've now learned through years of therapy, I was trying to avoid. And so if you please people or think you're going to be able to please people, then you avoid all that. So I would say I got to executive level people pleaser because I had gotten to the point where I could, I thought, go in and please everyone to the point of, you know, that they couldn't have emotion. <laughs> that backfires really quickly. So that doesn't work. And I'm a recovering executive people pleaser now. Looking back on it and after its very successful release, do you feel like it's some of the best work you've ever done? It's, you know, I wrote every word of it and didn't have a lot of edits the second time. So like the first book, there were, I think a lot of people were nervous. It was a lot to, to, to let out, um, even though it's nothing, it's kind of light compared to the second one. Um, so there were like eight run-throughs. And at the end I read, I remember reading it back and being like, that, that doesn't feel like me, but it is. Mm -hmm. This one was truly what I put out. I sat on my couch in the pandemic and wrote this book and that was my book and so it felt very good to have it received well and it felt very good that it was it was not as as bright but it was real you know it was just life and i think that's an important part i think everybody should be willing to at least express on paper if they're not ready to tell another person i think writing is one of the best ways to start trauma healing and then sharing whenever you are in the next place to be comfortable with it and i always keep likening it to post-disaster. I was an expert also, not just people pleaser, but I was expert at avoiding. Whenever something traumatic happened, I would run away, pretend it didn't, and lie to myself over and over and over because the shame was so deep or I was so worried about someone seeing that crack or imperfection in me. Instead of saying, that was far from perfect, but that's part of who I am, owning it, and then moving on and, and helping to heal from the trauma. And that's what people do in disaster. It's like a tornado took my house. Okay. Everybody sees that. 
So they move really quickly through that part of trauma and grief because it's visible and they have to, and it's nature. So they're very gracious with it. But then the next part comes the sadness, the frustration, the anger, the why me, the da, 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 da. And then what's amazing about a post-disaster, any of them, tornadoes or hurricanes, fires, people get really quickly to the helping each other part. And that's what we don't do in mental health either. We don't do the hand reach out. It's, it's like, we all know what to do if someone's leg is shattered, we take them to the hospital. But if someone's like, my brain is shattered, we're all like, ooh, uh, not sure what to do. And then there aren't as many resources um, available and certainly the financial part. And so now it's like my responsibility after this book to, to maybe stop writing and start employing how we get people to have the privilege that I did. And that is access to great care. And that's um, a lineup of a good diagnosis. And then the ability to have more than 10 sessions that are covered in your insurance. You have no idea how much that last part resonates, especially here in Oklahoma, where the lack of attention to mental health is practically an epidemic. I mentioned earlier that I told some folks you were coming on the show and they said I would not be doing my job if I did not ask you about your favorite memories on your time on Dancing with the Stars. Yes. Well, I just texted Jenna and Val. They're, they're having a baby and I'm, you know, we're still talk here and there and we're you never when you're nose to nose with someone for four or five months like that you you stay close and i think the friendships and the um the stretching of who i was was really the most special parts why the show still works because you're taking someone who's an expert in one place and you're breaking them down and letting them learn a new skill and that never gets old to watch never gets old to watch how humans react to adversity and that's what that show is and it is hard and so it's you know the challenge one of my favorites the inside news that i don't always say but it's kind of a fun story is uh, val and i he's a very tough coach best friends off the floor on the floor he's gonna push you and he was pushing me to the point where i was like val stop you know like we were really getting a little cattier with each other and the tango the argentine tango we did if you watch back, you can see it now. We are angry with each other. We hadn't spoken for about two hours. We were, um, we had a really rough rehearsal, but it works. And that Argentine tango attitude, I don't know if I could have done that well had we not been in that place emotionally. But, you know, it, it speaks much, very much to intention, too. The intention behind it was like, I'm going to kill you with dance. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Ginger Z, at your current age, you get the chance to talk to that young girl who saw her first water spout. What do you tell her? Three things. You deserve to be heard because I don't think that I knew that. And I think if I knew that I deserved it, anything, even to be speaking, that would have been really important. And then I would say my favorite advice now is <laughs> it doesn't really matter and nobody cares because <laughs> <laughs> most things don't. And nobody by nobody cares. Of course, people care about you. Your parents care about a lot. Most people have people that care about them. But the people who you think are like manipulatively coming after you, going for you, nobody cares. They're in their own little silo. They're doing their own thing. They're all worried about their own thing. And if I could have told myself that much earlier, especially in my career, that would have been really helpful because I have found out painfully many times that I've wasted a lot of time worrying about what somebody meant by that or what they were trying to do to me. And really, it was because they were worried about their own job or they had no idea what their actions or words did to me. That is great advice, especially worrying about what others think of yourself. So what is next for Ginger Z? Up next, I would say I'm working on a children's book because I'm finally going to do that. That's what I wanted to do in the first place. And I came out with a memoir about depression, not at all rainbows. And then I'm really pushing to build and grow our climate coverage. We have a huge special in the fall on the future of power and energy. And I, I've been focused a lot on EVs and batteries. I went to the, you know, the only commercially running lithium um, operation in the United States. More, more recently, I just traveled somewhere in the Rockies to another really important future of our power. And we're going to be telling a lot of stories in this, you know, half hour special that will be hopefully airing in September. So that's a big push right now. I always like to ask one fun question towards the end. And that is when you are not being the chief meteorologist of ABC, how do you unwind? Are there any shows you're into or any music that you're currently enjoying? Lately, I cannot get enough gardening and plants. Like I love plants. <laughs> I'm 
I am always out in the garden. I'm in constant garden mode. If I ever have any time in my day that's extra, that's where I kind of have that decompress. And I just enjoy watching things grow and seeing and, and like experimenting because there's such a science to it of, of how and why. And, you know, I like to make little controlled areas and then experimental areas and see what works and what doesn't. And I just keep expanding. I keep saying to my husband, I'm like, do you think I have a problem? He's like, no, this is a good hobby to have. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, Ginger, as we begin to wind down this interview, what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? So at Ginger underscore Z is how you find me on Twitter and Instagram. And then on Facebook, it's Ginger Z TV. And then I have a, a website where you can find a lot of my old stuff. It's Ginger hyphen Z dot com. Okay, Ginger, I end my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would want to say to the people of Earth? I would want to say that storms are inevitable they're part of the atmosphere and they're part of life but they don't last forever they just can't and won't so in life when those happen if you can remember that in those really difficult traumatic or mental break moments that this isn't going to feel like this tomorrow because it doesn't nothing is stagnant we'd be in real trouble if that were the people of earth you're not going to feel like this tomorrow keep it moving <laughs> okay the books are natural disaster i cover them i am one and a little closer to home, how I found the calm after the storm available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or wherever books are sold. Ginger, thanks ever so much for taking the time out of your, I know, incredibly busy schedule to be the star of my 100th episode of the Derek Duvall Show. It has been an absolute honor to speak with you. Derek, you as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. And all my best to you. Just like that, Duvall Nation, we come to the conclusion of episode 100. I don't even know how to properly thank Ginger and her team for making this happen. It took a lot of work on both sides to make this interview a reality, and I could not be happier with how it turned out. Ginger, thank you again. This one is for the ages. But folks, we are not done yet. I promised you in the past weeks we'll be having more surprises, and I have been sitting on another surprise guest, Duval Nation. Please rise to your feet, everyone, and welcome back the star of episode 11, and now a star in her own right, Miss Annabelle Guthers. <laughs> Annabelle, hello. Welcome back to the Derek Duval Show. How are Thank you? Thank you so much for having me, Derek. I am so honored and excited to be back on the Derek Duval Show. <laughs> you are one of the OG guests, man. We're talking, you know, over, what, almost two years ago since we last spoke. Oh, has it already been two years? Time flies. I suppose that means I was having fun. So that's yep. a good thing. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I've, I've been bringing back guests. We're coming up on our 100th episode and I'm going back through all the, the great guests we've got. And I was so taken by you the last time you were on. You're such a great guest. I was like, I got to have her back on the show. So I, I'm happy to have you back. Go ahead and tell my listeners what's been going on with you. Oh my goodness. Well, if it's already, firstly, a hundred episodes, what an accomplishment, what a huge feat. So round of applause to you, Derek. <laughs> I am, you. and I'm so honored to be back for your hundredth episode. Wow. I didn't realize it was two years. I suppose in that time, I really tried to hone in on my craft. I released my debut album, Loose Ends, which was such a thrilling experience and such a fulfilling experience. I've continued to write, I believe if it was two years ago, that means I would have been maybe in my last semester of my undergraduate. So since I have now been earning my master's degree from Berkeley College of Music and Songwriting, and I have just been writing away and I'm gearing up for some new releases and hopefully an impending EP or LP very soon. So I couldn't be more excited about all of that. <laughs> the last time we talked, we were, I mean, we were just in the middle of COVID hell. So now that that's, you know, we're starting to get to a more manageable part in our lives. Are you going to go ahead and finally uh, get on the bus and start touring around the country? 
I honestly, I certainly hope so. It sounds so like so much fun and sharing music in a, a communal space. There's nothing like it. There's a magic that's unparalleled. And so that is definitely my intention. And I'm looking so forward to that. Awesome. I do want to tell you, I've watched it a few times now. The cover Life on Mars that you did is stunning. Absolutely. Oh. Now, Thanks. I grew up listening to Bowie, so I, like I said, I I have a bit of history with the man. But this, your your cover of Life on Mars is absolutely fantastic, and the video, video as well, brilliant, bravo. Oh my goodness, thank you. Well, it you know it takes a village, it takes a tribe to put any sort of music out there, and I'm so grateful eternally, really, to have been able to work on this cover with my producer extraordinaire Dominique Messier and so many remarkable musicians who played on it from i have kevin girard on guitar i have guillaume marchand piano i have oh my god i was gonna say his nickname it's chill because he's a very chill guy on bass but his name is yves labonte and he's they're all just these extraordinary exceptional um, masters at what they do at how they play their instruments and they brought their emotionality to it and brought it to life in the most remarkable of ways. So I couldn't be more grateful. And thank you so much for your kindest words. I am touched. I'm humbled. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome. So you said you got some releases coming up as soon. You got a, you've got a timeline on that? Yes. I have one song that we have um, a timeline for and the other ones I'm really with this next group of songs with this next portion of my catalog i'm really trying to make sure i'm intentional with all of my sonic decisions and making sure that there's cohesion between the productions and the arrangements of each um so that they're all in that you know pulling from the same sonic palette um so some of those are still in the works because i i'm being very meticulous about it all but one of my favorite songs um that i've written is the next release and that is slated to be released, I believe, November 9th. So it's really coming up sooner than I can even imagine. <laughs> you know, you say that you, know, you sonically, you know, you want to be 100% with it. It reminds me of a great line uh, for George Lucas once said. And George Lucas was constantly tinkering around with his movies and stuff. And he says that uh, great projects are never finished. They're only abandoned. Oh. And I was, yeah, uh, I've always, that one's always kind of stuck in my head a little bit. Well, it just struck me that is, and I, you know what, I really resonate with that because it, you really feel like it's never, it's never quite complete. It's never quite perfect, but you get it to a place where it, it feels really authentic and genuine and a place where you could feel like, look and go, okay, I'm proud of this. And I think it's, it's ready to be shared um, with others, which is what music is all about. That's awesome. So, abandoning it for sure that is <laughs> i'm looking forward to doing that with my next release interstellar <laughs> so i asked you back in the uh, early days when i had you on the show who would you like to collaborate with is there anybody on that list that originally you were talking about i think it was it was taylor i think it was one of them i believe or taylor's always yeah. on the list. she's just you know, a genius at what she does lyrically melodically i i try and i feel emulate that in so many ways and you know, she she's the pioneer. She's one of the I should say one of the many, but she is absolutely brilliant. So definitely that would be a dream. Um, Harry Styles would definitely be up there. Alicia Keys. I think that these are, you know, just all different genres and, you know, they all have their own sonic stamp mm -hmm. and be able to explore that with them and just all their different approaches i would be i'd be i mean i'm already speechless even just you know imagine yeah. well i remember the last time i spoke to you i got you to listen to depeche mode yes. and uh, you were you were you were kind of digging on that but like i said this this is so many great musicians out there to collaborate with uh, there are uh, the talent that the world possesses is so it's remarkable and it's infinite and i mean those are just three that you know popped into my head right immediately but there's an, a plethora of other artists that i would absolutely dream of collaborating with if awesome. i would so have the opportunity awesome all right well i want to wish you again congratulations on all your success you've come a long way since the last oh. time i spoke to you so congratulations keep doing what you're doing annabelle man you're you're killing it oh derek thank you so much and uh you're just 
amazing. I am always so honored to be here and to be able to just have these conversations with you. It, it's, it's such a privilege. So thank you so much for having me, for your kindest words. I'm going to go relay them to my family because I always come off this yeah. conversation with you, this dialogue, and I just, I'm so humbled and honored and I can't right. take this smile off my face. I think that speaks volumes. <laughs> awesome, awesome. All right, Annabelle, I'm gonna, best of luck to you, okay? Thank you so much, Derek. I have been in contact with Annabelle, and as a surprise, we have the just-now-released single, Interstellar, for you to hear. Enjoy. I want to thank Annabelle for being such a great sport and for taking the time to come back on the show. As you can tell, her and I, are we get along really well, and she's just and such a ray of sunshine in a world that definitely needs more people like her. All right, that actually brings us to the real end of episode 100. On this 100th episode, I have so many people I want to thank. First up, and that's most obvious of all, Mrs. Duval for making sure I always stay true to the purpose of the show and for being my biggest fan since deciding to branch out and start this project. To Chris Smith of Podtastic Audio for being my tech man and always helping me sort out audio problems and always giving me a kick in the ass when I always felt like I wasn't doing a good enough job. My great friend Jeff Brown. Jeff Brown is the voice of the Derek Duvall Show. He does all the great uh, promos. He's also done some work for me for some friends' projects. I want to give Jeff a big hug and a big thank you. I also want to thank the team at Stanton & Company for being such a huge believer in this project. Also the team at Valerie Allen, Harlem Ball, and other PR teams at Gersh, William Morris, Bernstein for putting their trust in me. Okay, 
I'm going to micro machine guy this one, but I also want to thank my very first guests, Victor Parrish and Dr. Karen Stalsno, Annabelle Guther, Sadie Cannon, Dr. Tara Lindsay, Robert Hayes, the great Robert Hayes, Vangel Hinton and Sean Rivera, Summers McKay, Walter Egan, Audrey Hope, Mike Anthony, the guys of the documentary team Shred America, which by the way is a great documentary, Bliss Landon, the late Dick Thalen, the, he was a survivor of the USS Indianapolis. He passed away about a year ago now. He was just a, such a great person. Steve Keeble and Ben Lord of the documentary team After 82, Dr. Mauricio Habron, Dr. Mahmoud Gaman, Eric Ronigan, the 9-11 survivor, one of my dearest friends in the entire world, Katie Kinder, Ken Lindner, Tim Russ, the amazing Tim Russ, silver medalist, Jalen Koff, Ryan Frederick, Whitney DeFaggio, who's made a couple appearances on this show. Our third most popular episode of all time was Cassie from Popcorn in Bed. Uh, the two, the three guys over at Them Fantasies, Dr. Kamali Thompson, Carl Gottlieb, I still can't believe I got that guest, Bill Edwards, Alice Amter, Michelle Fabre, the Heisman Trophy winner, Jason White, who I actually saw recently, which was really cool, uh, my great friend, Chad Malone, Amber Kelleher Andrews, and the team over here at Kelleher, they have been such supporters of this show. Uh, one of my dearest friends in the whole world, Erica Wilson. The guys, the Trills, what a great group. Our most popular episode of all time, Mr. Eric King of Dexter fame. I'm such a great fan of the show. I'm a big fan of his. My friend, Shauna Blake. My friend, Mike, over at One Mike History Podcast. Abby Harrison, Dr. Ann Kaplan. Jordan Weber, Cynthia Rothrock. Tom Cook. Dr. Pintel, Dr. Raze, and Robin Berlin, Alan Thurston, Liv Ritchie, Doug Cartwright, Allison Angram, the two guys, uh, Matt Barman and Kyle Einhorn, they did the Destiny Rules to Flee with Mac documentary. Those guys were so cool. Beatrice Hatz, Janae Sergio, my old shipmate, and a really, really great friend, Mr. Bill Parker, who I saw recently. He's 98. He just turned 98, folks. Uh, the guys over at the last Blockbuster documentary, a really, really good friend, Peter Tatchell, Katie Silcox, Adam Wasserman, Justin Jackson over at Transistor. He's such a great guy. Uh, the ladies over at Evermore Pet Food, Captain Dale Dye, who I have the highest respect for, Jennifer Gable, Hit and Battle, Dr. Gator Walsh, Kaleida, uh, the, my friends Jeff and Tim, the guys who were the Jeopardy episode, Alex Weber, Bianca Blanco, uh, Jaron and Maggie Clayton, the guys who do Blonde Brewer, they're so cool. Rick Holmes, Maddie Musselman, Blanchard Ryan, the the, um, the lead singer and, and, and guitarist for Echo Belly, Lee Langston, Michael Smith, Tracy Crossley. Um, this one really hurts. The late, great Rick Turner. Rest in power, Rick. You were a damn legend. Uh, Danica Rockward, Mike DaVincio, Bill Hamm, Carl Darden, Jim Meskimen, Dr. Seth Chostak, Daniela Park, Jessica Brody, Brent Magnuson, Dr. Trevor Cates. Uh, the team over at Cleaning Up the Town, at Claire and Anthony, they're amazing. Benny Latham, David Hollenbach, Mari Cottonova, Carol Decker. I still can't believe I got Carol Decker on this show. Will Blaine, the ladies at Frangella, Sarah Gallagher-Bradford, Tom McLaughlin, Taylor Renault, and Rachel Pizzolatto. Man, that was a great little comeback through. The Nike Machines guy would be so proud. But lastly, I want to thank you, Duval Nation. In the last nearly three years, we have grown the show from 50 listens to well in the tens of thousands now. Your continued support of this show has made this host's heart swell, and I wish I could thank every single one of you personally. We still have over 40 interviews that we have recorded that have not seen the light of day yet, but trust me, as we work now towards episode 200, you're all going to be in for one hell of a ride. Nostar, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com, to explore past episodes and find links to purchase merchandise. Please subscribe to our social media channels on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Derek Duval Show.